0: Turn with me to Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. Our passage today is the story of Jesus healing a deaf man, a man who was deaf and also had a speech impediment. Jesus has done many miraculous things throughout the book of Mark so far, and Mark has a point he makes with each story that he tells. Today, Mark emphasizes in the way that he tells this story, That as Jesus heals this man's deafness and his speech impediment, he doesn't just do so physically, he does so spiritually as well. He makes this man able to understand, to hear, and he makes this man able to speak spiritual truths. So let us read God's word here, Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on them. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, "Ephatha," That is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. When you need physical help, you go to a doctor. When you need help for your heart, you go to a dear friend or to your mom. Imagine someone who's an expert in both. There are doctors who have terrible bedside manners, who are really bad at caring for the person as a person, even though they're good at caring for them as um, a work of medicine. And there are plenty of dear friends and mothers who know nothing about using a scalpel in the operating room. But imagine somebody who is an expert in both caring for the body and the soul. Jesus heals today this this man physically. But he heals physically as an illustration of his spiritual healing that he accomplishes in the life of this man and in every believer. For example, last week in the Feast of Crumbs, we saw there the hope of salvation demonstrated to this woman in the body and the blood of Jesus as she feasted on crumbs in that parable. So this week, as we see the deaf man, the deaf and speech impaired man being healed, that demonstrates both the raising of spiritually dead people to spiritual life. Everybody is spiritually dead until the spirit wakes them up. And it illustrates the restoration of the physical body on the last day. Mark is strategically and intentionally telling us The multi-layered complexity of salvation with the abundant blessings that Jesus gives to those who believe in him. So we'll briefly look at setting the stage for the healing in this text, and then we'll look at the bodily healing, and then we'll really dive in and spend most of our time looking at the significance of the spiritual healing of this man here. So let's look at the stage really quickly in verses 31 and 32. First of all, Jesus is on the move again. From the region of Tyre and Sidon, he goes down to the Decapolis. Now, there's much debate over why, this, why Mark describes Jesus' course in this way, because Tyre is south of Sidon and the Decapolis is southeast of both of those. So why would Jesus go from the region of Tyre through Sidon to the north and then down south to the Decapolis? Well, first of all, we were told Jesus was in the region of Tyre and Sidon, so he could have been closer to Sidon. Also, Sidon could have been quite an easy place to refuel and grab some food. But then, most clearly, there was a path a pass through the mountains that went from Sidon down to the Decapolis. So at a first reading, some people might say this this is a circuitous route. Why would Jesus go this way? But upon further study, we realize geographically, it's really hard to go straight from Tyre down to the region of Galilee. Either way, what we see is that Jesus is intentionally in Gentile territory going from Gentile territory to Gentile territory, because it is important that the gospel be shown to Gentiles. Jesus is about proclaiming the kingdom of God and bringing it both to the Jewish and Gentile worlds. Now, there are some background characters also in this story. They're mentioned five times. They are called they. Five times these people come up. First, they come to Jesus, bringing their friend for healing. And we'll see, pay attention to they, throughout the story. They also end up with a spiritual healing. And you'll remember a few chapters ago when Jesus was last in the Decapolis, he cast out the legion of demons for the demoniac. And then that man went into the Decapolis and proclaimed the good news of Jesus. So he had been working behind the scenes until Jesus got here, which is why Jesus was surrounded by so many and did so many healings here, this being one of them. He was the first successful Gentile missionary. But there's a problem presented to Jesus when he gets there. This man is deaf and he has a speech impediment. And saying he is deaf, it means he cannot hear. It seems that he was not deaf from birth because he could speak. The word there used for speech impediment uh, is a very unique word uh, that seems to be that he, he couldn't speak well, though maybe at one time he could. But then perhaps he lost his hearing and then was able to, unable, became unable to speak. Maybe it was through an injury or an illness. But we do see that in verse 35, it says he spoke plainly. So the miracle was that he was able then to speak plainly, not speak at all. With this speech impediment, this word used to describe a speech impediment was used only one other time in the Bible, and it's in Isaiah 35. I'm going to read to you really quickly Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, and this is a hugely important text. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. This promise in Isaiah is not a flat, physical promise. It's not a one-layer promise of physical healing, but it describes the promise of salvation for God's children and the promise of the new creation. After chapters and chapters of just judgment, like what we read in Isaiah 24 just a little bit ago, the remnant of Israel and the remnant of the Gentiles finally find rest and blessing in the kingdom that God ushers in, as we see described here in Isaiah 35. So thematically, to take that idea of restoration, of ultimate healing, and translate it here. See, this is what Jesus is bringing. It's ultimate restoration, and it's healing for this man who had a speech impediment. He's bringing physical healing to demonstrate that, most importantly, he is the healer of souls. He is the one who opens the ears of the deaf and unstops the mouth of those who cannot speak. His spirit sweeps in and gives life, enabling the dead to walk. The deaf to hear and to make the mute to proclaim the good news of Jesus. So he's not just physically deaf. That deafness represents spiritual deafness. Deafness to the law and the gospel, as one commentator put it. The law has no power of conviction over him because he is deaf and cannot hear it. And the gospel has no power of comfort to him because he is deaf and cannot hear it as a natural person. And unless you hear the condemnation of the law, unless you hear the reality of your sins and unless you hear the good news of the comfort of the gospel, how are you going to speak it clearly? Because hearing and speaking are so closely connected, both physically and spiritually. You know the person who talks on and on and on about things that he actually knows nothing about. We don't want to be those people. We want to speak clearly and plainly with understanding, which requires that we understand and we hear. One more thing in the stage here. Jesus took him aside from the crowd privately. Jesus took this man away. Jesus was was not trying to set up a show that made him look amazing. He was there out of compassion to care for the man. He even demands silence at the end. He doesn't want this news spreading. Whether it's strategic or out of compassion, there is compassion on Jesus' part for this man. He has, Jesus has been trying to protect his reputation. The last time he was in the Decapolis, he told the man who had had the legion, go and proclaim, yet now he says, don't share. Perhaps he's in a different region, a more Jewish region where the messianic misunderstanding might be a problem. Or perhaps his fame has already spread so much now that there's great danger in the crowds hindering his mission and pressing in upon him again. No matter how we understand that, the stage is set. For healing, a healing like we've seen so far in Mark, something like casting out demons, healing fevers and paralysis and withered hands and hemorrhaging, cleansing lepers, calming the wind and waves, feeding the 5,000 and raising the dead. Something great is about to happen with Jesus on the scene. So let's look at the bodily healing, the physical healing. There's great expectation. They came and asked Jesus. They the background characters, they came and asked Jesus to lay his hand on this man because it was understood that in the laying on of hands, there was power and there was healing. So Mark tells us very specifically how Jesus healed this man. And there's a good reason to think that this is because Peter remembers this story in particular and is giving eyewitness account of what he saw. It's a little bit strange. Jesus puts his fingers in the man's ears. He then spits and touches the man's tongue in order to free this man's ears and mouth. When Jesus puts his fingers in the man's ears, first of all, to touch such a person is a sign of compassion. Jesus cares for him. He is identifying with him. He is not afraid to be near him. He's not a magician or a superstitious healer's remedy. That's not what putting your fingers in the ears is. Instead it's a sign of his engagement with the man. That's what Peter remembered Jesus doing. And then Mark tells us that Jesus spit. I don't like to get into Greek in too much detail, but I'll tell you the Greek word for spit. Petuo. It's one of those words that sounds exactly like what it is. They thought that famous people's petusas had magic powers. They thought if I could just get the spit of the emperor... There was great cultural expectation that great people's spit could be powerful. Also in the Greek world, they had sought all kinds of balms and remedies. This was a place where they were looking for medical cures. I mean, the greatest technology, latest theories. But Jesus shows, I am the source. I have the authority. I have the power to heal. That's what Jesus is saying here. And from Jesus's mouth, Come words of life, not just to fix this man's speech impediment, but also to open up his spiritual life, to proclaim the good news of Jesus. The language for what happened to his tongue, it says that Jesus liberated the tongue from its chains. This is a great expression of freedom that now comes from understanding what Jesus has done for him. Now the man's physical tongue has been freed to speak of the healing that Christ has done for him. Jesus, in this bodily healing, looks to heaven. He looks to heaven, and that is significant, not just because it's a heartless prayer. He shows that the source of power for healing comes from heaven. And it makes Jesus, at this point, more than just a healer. He becomes the great high priest. Because as he looks to heaven and intercedes on behalf of his people, he is at the throne room of God, looking to heaven asking for healing on behalf of this man. As they, the background characters, they brought this man to Jesus, so they actually came to the throne room of heaven because Jesus, the great high priest, was interceding for them with the father as he looked up to heaven. And in that moment, God blessed the man by his son's presence there with him. God blessed the man who could not speak clearly. And then, when Jesus says, be opened, we realize there will be physical, yes, but also spiritual dimensions to this healing. So, now let's focus in on the spiritual healing that happens for this man. When Jesus said, be opened, that Aramaic word is a tongue twister. When it says, be opened, the man spoke plainly. By Jesus' very command, be opened. We see that Jesus has power in his word to affect change. He has power to create by the power of his word. As we see in Genesis and in John, his very word has power. And so when he says, be open, it affects change. So the man was able to hear and to speak plainly, but also spiritually. The spirit in that moment enabled this man to hear and speak spiritual truths as he does every believer who believes in Jesus Christ. Jesus sighed. Jesus sighed as he looked up to heaven and said, Be opened. This sigh right here may be the most important clue to what is happening in this passage. In verse 34, it says Jesus sighed. After looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to the man, Ephetha, that is, be opened. The sigh points us to the spiritual meaning because it anticipates in the sigh a new creation. Because Jesus, as the high priest of Hebrews 4.15, is sympathizing with our weaknesses. He is broken over the condition of the world. He says, I understand the pain that you are feeling. I see the consequences of sin. In Romans, Paul uses the same word in Romans 8.23. And not only the creation groans, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan or sigh. It's that same word. Even we who have the first fruits of the spirit sigh and groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We groan, we sigh, we wait, we see how broken this world is, and we can't wait to be adopted as God's children. That's our hope that keeps us driving forward. And we say, yes, we've been adopted. Yes, we've been justified. Yes, we're being sanctified if we are in Christ, but we still see brokenness because it is already true of us, but it is not yet complete. Jesus knows the power that he can affect in this man's life, but he also is anticipating a full restoration. The adoption of all of God's children and specifically, Paul tells us in Romans 8, this adoption that we're waiting for is the redemption of our bodies. We so often talk about the redemption of the souls, and that is good and true, and Jesus saves our souls. But Jesus also is redeeming, will redeem our bodies. This adoption includes specifically resurrecting our physical bodies into heavenly bodies that you can see and touch bodies which can hear and which can speak, which are no longer subject to death because Christ is sustaining us and which are no longer deaf and no longer have speech impediments, bodies that are made whole, bodies which are renewed. So as Jesus sighs as he looks to heaven, he says, I'm right here beside you. I am sympathizing with your weakness and I can't wait With you for the completed redemption, for justification, for sanctification, for adoption of the children, even the redemption of their bodies. And this is for anyone who has faith in Jesus. This is for any person who understands and submits to the truth of the gospel. Jesus shows this redemption by healing this man's body, saying, This is the type of healing that you will receive spiritually if you are in Jesus. But it is only for those who have faith. For those who do not believe, the rest remain in brokenness and worse, in eternal punishment, like what is described in Isaiah 24. There's one more very interesting parallel that Mark points out for us in verse 36. The background characters, they, they end up zealously proclaiming what Jesus had done. The blind man had his tongue loose from its chains and he began to proclaim. Also, they proclaimed zealously what Jesus had done. And they say he has done all things well. The Pharisees have seen Jesus do incredible things, yet they say he's doing it by an evil spirit, by Beelzebul. Yet these people see it and say, no, he's doing it well. They see who he is. They understand far more than the religious experts do. They also have had their tongues freed as they get a glimpse of the physical and spiritual restoration that Christ is working. It sounds a lot like God's declaring his work good in Genesis 131. He saw all that he had made and it was very good. These people look and see what Jesus has done in making the new creation and the kingdom spreading even into the Decapolis. And they say, he has done all things very well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak, they say. Who can do this but God alone? This is God acting when the deaf can now hear, when the mute can now speak. This is God doing what God does. This is God keeping both ends of his covenant with his believers. This is God giving life and restoring, and we see a picture of this ultimate restoration right here on this day in the Decapolis. But Jesus commanded silence, which leaves us anticipating something, anticipating the completion, the full picture, the full story. Like the silence before a scare in a movie. Or like the quiet before the storm. We're forced to wait, to anticipate something great. If so far he has done all things well, we can anticipate that whatever he's about to do is also going to be great. Jesus does, at one point, stop demanding silence. And that's once the full picture of who he is is revealed. Jesus has done great things, but he says, that's not the fullness of who I am. Don't share the partial gospel. You have to see the whole picture in order to understand who he is and what he's doing. Jesus stops demanding that silence once the task of reconciling God's people to God is complete. Once he has been led like a lamb to the slaughter, and only then is there no longer silence required. Once he has given up his breath, Once he has hung on the cross with the nails driven into his wrists and and into his feet. Once he has been mocked at and scoffed and beaten. Once he has been pierced. Only once he has become the ultimate sufferer, the ultimate servant. Only once he has risen victorious over the grave and not just in a physical sense, but in the most important spiritual sense the world has ever seen. It's only... Once he has shown his real messianic mission of saving the lost bodies and souls of God's children. It's only once sins are forgiven and God's children are reconciled to him. And it's only once Jesus says it is finished. It's only once salvation is accomplished, not just made possible. It is only then. That the full picture of the Messiah is seen and can be understood and can be proclaimed in its fullness. And once Jesus died that death and made us right for all who believe, once he rose from the dead and conquered death itself, it was very good. Because in that new creation, We have been welcomed in. And all the promises of restoration that come from the Old Testament and from Mark and from the life of Jesus, specifically I think of Isaiah 35, which we read earlier, all these promises of restoration become reality. And we receive it all simply by faith, by looking to Jesus, saying, He is enough. So as we go from here, what does this physical... physical healing, mirroring a spiritual healing, what does this mean for you and for me? I want us to take away four things. First, when you tell the gospel, tell the whole thing. We're so accustomed to telling people what they want to hear, selling the gospel, that we cut out the parts that are a little bit offensive, or the parts that maybe these people don't want to hear, We need to be people who proclaim the full message of the Messiah. Jesus didn't reserve talking about the gospel. He didn't save that just for the synagogue. He specifically advanced the kingdom wherever he went, even in Tyre and Sidon, to the location of today's story in the Decapolis, everywhere he went. And he wasn't afraid to tell the whole thing. Which is why when he rose from the dead, he told his disciples to go to the nations. Tell them the whole story. Don't cheapen the gospel. If Jesus didn't want the partial gospel of healings proclaimed, we see how damaging a partial gospel can be. If he didn't want the nationalistic revolution gospel taught, then why would we ever be okay with a gospel tailored for one side of the aisle or the other? Don't leave out the parts that are hard to talk about. The power of God for salvation should never be cheapened. Second, let's pray richly. There are lots of things that weigh on our hearts physical concerns, material concerns. Let's not just pray for the physical nature of these things. Let's pray richly and let's pray spiritually, realizing that in all these things, God is also working on the hearts of His people and drawing people near. When somebody is suffering, don't pray simply that the problem might be fixed. But pray that in this problem, we might see the beauty of Jesus Christ. Pray that in this problem, faith might, be, that might grow and trust for the Savior. Third, know that when you're broken, you have someone who cares. Remember how when you were a kid, when you bumped or scratched or scraped your arm, a kiss from your mom would make it all better. She didn't have a magic touch. Sorry to break it to you. She didn't actually heal the scratch. She knew what you really needed. She cared for your heart. She cared for your fears. Here's a promise for you. When you feel your brokenness, your scratches and your bumps and your scrapes and your bruises, run to Jesus for help because he cares. He has sighed and groaned. He has longed for your redemption, even the redemption of your body, which he will restore. But he also knows what you really need. He sympathizes with your weaknesses. He cares for your soul. He is the balm that you need. Even when you think that you need a physical fix, because in him, Salvation provides real, lasting, eternal hope. And lastly, anticipate something better than a physical healing when things are hard. Anticipate something so much better than just physical healing from deafness or a stammering tongue. We anticipate the restoration of it all. Body, mind, soul, the earth, the workplace, righteousness and justice and on and on. So whether you're adjusting to a new phase of life... Whether you're starting college or whether you're starting a new job or recently married or 20 years into your marriage and it still feels like it's new. And whether you have kids or you're in a new phase of parenting, don't just anticipate a, a change of your situation thinking that that will fix things. We need to anticipate something so much greater than that. For those who are facing especially painful gouges in life, a rift in the marriage Family problems, financial inadequacy, a growing addiction, impending death, medical uncertainties, the corrosion of relationships, a breakup, the loss of a dear friend or a dear family member. Whatever the painful gouge is. There's hope coming at the physical level, maybe at the spiritual level. Absolutely. For those who are in Jesus, there will be rest for the weary. Jesus has suffered with you and for you. If death prevails in your situation today, it will not prevail in the end. Because Jesus has conquered that enemy of yours. He has done all things well. He cares for your soul well. He has redeemed you well, and He will carry you home. Both body and soul, and He will do it well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, sometimes we feel bruised and beaten, Knocked around back and forth. We need to be reminded that you are the one who cares and who heals. You are the one who works redemption. You are the one when you said it is finished on the cross. Your people, their salvation was secured. We thank you that we have confidence in Jesus Christ, that we have hope, that we can look forward to a restoration. We thank you for your spirit who gives eyes to see and ears to hear. Would we be people also whose tongues are loosed to proclaim the good news of Jesus? It's in his name we pray by the spirit. Amen.